Hello and welcome along to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at the big political issues facing the North from a Northern perspective. I'm Rob Parsons, a political journalist based in Leeds who follows the ups and downs of our region's mayors, town halls and MPs and tries to make sense of what they're doing and what their policies mean for us in the North in my daily email newsletter called the Northern Agenda. You probably won't be surprised to hear that this week all the attention is on Chancellor Jeremy Hunt in the House of Commons as he unveiled his autumn statements, or at least the bits that hadn't already been briefed out to the media in advance, in an hour-long speech. In the national media, all the talk is about tax cuts. How big are they? When do they start? Will they be swallowed up by so-called fiscal drag, where millions of people every year lose out by virtue of being moved into a higher tax bracket. But in today's Northern Agenda podcast, I wanted to have a look at what the speech this Wednesday will mean for the North. In a few minutes, we'll hear the interview I did with one of Jeremy Hunt's Treasury Ministers, Leeds-born Gareth Davies, about the new investment zone in West Yorkshire that's seeing £160 million of public investment to help boost the region's thriving health and life sciences sector. But how will it actually work? Keep listening to find out more about that. But first, to dissect the autumn statement and how it will play out in this part of the world, we've got two leading Northern voices. I'm very pleased to be joined by Claire Hayward, Interim Chair of the NP11 Group of Northern Local Enterprise Partnerships, and Henry Mearson, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. It's great to have you both on. How are you doing? Good, thank you, Rob, and thank you very much for the invitation. Good to see you both. Are you well, Henry? Yeah, great to see you both, Rob. Excellent. So maybe as a starting point, you could just give me your general impressions from what we heard today. And Henry, what were your main takeaways from the speech? So clearly, we're in the run up to a general election now, right, Rob? So it was very clear that was that was front and centre. I think the the challenge for the Chancellor is that the the overall picture is that in order to fund those tax cuts, one for business in the form of the uh, the significant change to how expensing of, of capital investment will work, which I think is really welcome, and that national insurance cut that probably had more to do with his neighbour next door than with his instincts, I think. Um, you've got to take significant money out of public services, including probably local government. Uh, and what was most worrying to me from kind of the national picture is the cut to public investment. And what is ironic, obviously, is is taking money from investing in things like schools and hospitals, which obviously do have a long-term productivity impact. Do you mean long-term these days seems to mean something shorter and shorter, but I define long-term as over coming decades. Um, And in a city like Leeds, that has got two new hospitals in the new hospitals programme. Do you mean Airedale in the queue just around the corner from where I live that's about to fall down because of its rack problems? I mean, I feel very acutely that that's going to have an impact just where we're sitting right now. Um, and I think my kind of reflection would be it's hard to give a medicine to the private sector, which is that they need to invest more to drive up productivity and then not follow that same recipe yourself. There's an inherent contradiction there. And there are things, there are social goods that only the public sector can invest in. And whether that be a tram in Manchester that's delivered huge benefits to productivity, West Yorkshire wants one of those too, right? And I'm sure there's some be some private money in there, but you won't be able to find it all from housing and planning gain, you'll have to put in some core public funding. And it feels like the economics and the kind of financial elements of this speech don't go together. And it was Chris Reid, who's the leader of Rotherham, who was observing, I think, on Twitter this morning, if only um, in response to one of the FT's journalists, 
um, you had to announce the details of all the spending cuts when you did the budget. That's what local leaders have to do when they prepare their budgets. In my misspent youth in local government, I had to do that. I think the lack of, of transparency about what's going to actually have to be lost in local communities and from the national departments to pay for these measures um, is, is kind of lost in the midst of time. And it's almost like a punt there that if the, if the figures are slightly better in the future, some of that money could go back into public spending. But I think after what happened on some of those transport policy changes that you and I talk about far too much, Rob, so I won't, I won't delve into that now, that lack of investment in the public sector and what that means for regional productivity, this is another signal that perhaps the government doesn't understand what the role is for the state in improving productivity. There is absolutely a role for business, but there is a role for central, regional and local government as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll delve a little bit more into that uh, a bit later. But Claire, I'm interested to hear your view. Obviously, uh, the NP11 represents, uh, you know, is is responsible for helping to drive economic growth across uh, the many different parts of the North. Were you happy with what you heard from the speech? And were there any things that you, you wish you'd heard, but you didn't? So um, in terms of representing the businesses and also thinking about how we're collaborating to deliver growth, um, one of us was pleased we were talking about some of the productivity issues that we have in the UK. And I think we need to constantly compare ourselves with what is happening outside the UK and making sure that we're maintaining a competitive position to enable that growth. So what I was pleased about was the fact that the Chancellor has identified life sciences, the net zero green technologies and advanced manufacturing as key growth areas, because as the, as the northern footprint, that is one of the areas that we absolutely can make a massive difference to the UK and actually globally. So um, investing initially in some of those the life sciences and the advanced manufacturing as demonstrated by the uh, deal that Manchester and Yorkshire have got that makes a huge difference what we do need to get, do is actually get down into some of that detail and make sure that that is delivered and we work really closely so I think that was a real that was real a real positive the other element that I thought was helpful and is something that comes up on a fairly regular basis when I'm speaking to green tech and net zero uh, businesses, which is uh, uh, fundamentally actually impacts all of us and all business, um, is the change for planning for the national grid. Um, It's something that a lot of the businesses have been crying out for. I'm glad that it is there. Um, I haven't particularly got a huge amount regarding um, where and how, but that is positive. And I note the other bit was, you know, if you've got a pylon in your garden, you're going to be reimbursed by that. Uh, That's going to be interesting to see how that actually plays out. But some of that green industries growth accelerator is, is a positive. The infrastructure side, just going back to um, Henry's point, um, that is more of a challenge and is something that, again, the people that I'm speaking to are really keen to make sure that some of those infrastructure and long-term planning is improved. So one of the things I I thought was helpful is that we're starting to talk 10 years, making some commitments for 10 years. What I'd like to see is that those commitments are stuck two and um, so three ports going from five years to ten years that is helpful because business need to be thinking longer term and and that sure hopefully that surety is going to to help on that 
That's really uh, interesting. And you mentioned, you know, the three ports and investment zones. And as you say, the the, the lifespan of those projects has been uh, doubled from five years to 10 years. And in fact, we found out about another investment zone. So we're going to hear more about that this from Gareth Davies in the interview I did with him uh, earlier this week, a little later. But obviously, it's the, the idea is that the government identifies particular areas of the country, quite a lot of them in the north, uh, which have sectors which uh, have a lot of potential like life sciences and health in West Yorkshire or advanced manufacturing in uh, Greater Manchester and they put millions and millions of pounds in which goes toward boosting skills but also tax incentives like removing stamp duty and business rates and that kind of thing and the idea is that it sucks in businesses and investments into into these zones. I mean I I was chairing uh, this week an event uh, a panel in Sheffield uh, at the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre in Sheffield and the Chief Executive of Sheffield City Council was there and she was talking about the investment zone in Sheffield. So that is the first one in England. Uh, It's going to try and help pioneer sort of a new technology in uh, aerospace. But she was saying, so this is Kate Josephs, the Chief Executive of Sheffield City Council, that 80 million, uh, which is what the government is putting in, is a peanuts and she described it as less than you would pay for a Premier League uh, Premier League striker. Uh, to put it in terms that people people on the street would understand, I guess. Um, I mean, is the scale of the government's ambition here uh, enough, uh, Claire? Like, do, 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 do you think they need to go further in this in, in this space? Um, yes, and um, and I think in many ways it's not just about. This, the um, investment amount, but it's also how is that distributed. So we're, we're, I think with all the research that's been done, if you get the investment zones working really closely together with the whole ecosystem, you understand the skills and you understand the investment and you can then lever that. But what you need is increased evolution and powers. And actually, what is going to be great for the North is the fact that Manchester has now, Greater Manchester has, has now agreed that they have got increased, heightened funding and powers. And so now we're starting to talk about the level four devolution. That actually needs to be accelerated across the North. So that it, we're not just relying on government, but we are giving more flexibility, more agility, more power to people across the north to understand how do they build on the assets that they have to be able to deliver that economic growth. And that's something that I think is a real benefit, um, having that role model, if you like, of Greater Manchester. We now need to just spread that further so that you've got the power, you've got the ability to make those decisions that will make a big difference. And that's when people will feel the difference uh, on a day-to-day basis when the opportunities are widespread, they can get to work, they can get back home. You know, that is absolutely critical. So actually the um, devolution deals that have been announced are really helpful. I'd just like to see that accelerated and deepened. Yeah, I'm interested in your view on um, what we heard on devolution uh, this week, Henry. So obviously uh, we now have devolution deals confirmed for Lancashire, who have finally got their act together uh, and managed to agree on something which means they will get a devolution deal without without a mayor uh crucially um because i don't think they want that in in lancashire which means that because a mayoral deal is the sort of preferred model for this government the lancashire deal is a lot more limited 
than devolution deals uh, elsewhere. But there's also devolution in Hull, Hull and the East Riding, who I think are getting £400 million over 30 years uh, to create a mayoral authority. And south of the Humber, uh, all the Lincolnshire authorities are coming together to have their deal, uh, their deal as well. I mean, I guess, um, I mean, is that something that you're excited about it? I guess it means that most of the north of England, with a few exceptions, is now covered by a devolution deal of some kind. Does that mean that leaders in our part of the world are better placed now to sort of to decide the way forward than than they were, say, 10 years ago? So it's nine in 10 of us, Rob, over in on average. I mean, it's now over 90% of northerners. Uh, and I mean, you can you can now, you now have a metro mayor everywhere from basically the, the, the sort of the deepings and the wash right up to the border with Scotland on that side of the country, uh, on, on the east of the Pennines. So, I mean, that is a huge transformation considering that in that first round of devolution, those first three deals in the north after Greater Manchester, obviously followed very quickly Sheffield and Liverpool City region, and it took a long time for the, for what is now South Yorkshire to, to be able to be fully up and running. Well, now everywhere on that side of the country in the north actually is is there with the mayoral model. Um, and I think what I would reflect on is, as Claire alludes to, even the level three powers, because we're getting into our sort of real nerdy levels here. So you, if you get the mayor, you get level three. If you don't have a mayor, you, you are limited to level two, which is better than nothing, but it isn't it isn't the full, and you don't get gain share. That's the main, one of the main differences. And you can maybe do something about buses, but you need permission. It's not automatic. So it's, some of the similarities are there in terms of what you can do, but it isn't as, you don't have as much freedom. But still, 400 million over 30 years. I mean, in that, that Hull and East, East Riding devolution deal, it references Greenport too. Do you mean that is a, do you mean there's 5 million, up to 5 million towards that project subject to business case approval? That's a 200 million pound scheme if it goes ahead. Do you mean to to extend the Siemens Gementia facility to enable another turbine, another blade factory, sorry, on that site, uh, neighbouring it? So, I mean, the scale of ambition isn't necessarily where we would set it, if I'm honest. And I think the level four deals, I know that a number of our Metro mayors, cross party, Ben Houchin, as well as 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 those like uh, the mayor in South Yorkshire, Oliver Coppard, would have liked to proceed now uh, to level four. I hope that will happen before the general election. I, I think, that, I mean, again, in very nerdy terms, I'm excited there's a framework and there's thrilling for everyone listening, I'm sure, because what that means is that rather than having to like go in and beg a chancellor to override various officials and other departments who are being idiots, which is essentially how the devolution negotiations tend to work. I mean, there are some very good officials at DLUC, but their colleagues across government sometimes have not been as progressively minded as perhaps they could have been. And it's only been like the chancellor or a senior minister like Michael Gove, who's able to bang heads together. Now there's a framework. Once you're judged to being ready to take on those powers, there is no requirement for that kind of process to be repeated ad infinitum for every deal that's done it just becomes the next step for people uh, and i think that is the right approach which is both from a government perspective around bandwidth but also for places to do this in any sensible way you need to have an agreed approach so that things happen based on areas readiness rather than the whims of particular ministers or officials at a particular time so i'm really excited about the framework i'm really excited about uh, Hull and East Riding and about Greater Lincolnshire as well as about Lancashire. But I think it is a good comparison, which is that to get something away in Lancashire is a huge achievement. It's been really challenging, I know, for the leaders involved. Um, but 
they will they will work out whether they can deliver their full aspirations with the deal they've done. And at some point in the future, they may want to build on that and go further, and then they can have a negotiation with the government about that. But I think it's still better to do something rather than nothing. Do you mean I, I think that even level three devolution with a mayor is quite limited. <laughs> so I think that my my view would be take what you can agree you want locally when you can agree it. Um, that's the right thing to do. But nowhere near 90% of the rest of the country has got devolution, right? So the north of England is doing comparatively well on this regard. Let's not beat ourselves up about the fact that it took a few places a while to work out the detail. Do you mean many other parts of, of, of England are still way behind us? Claire, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, obviously you're as, as uh, interim chair of the NP11, which represents local enterprise partnerships. You know, you work with uh, private private businesses, but also with you know local local leaders. They're part of it too. So I'm just kind of interested in your view on sort of what Henry alluded to earlier, which is the I guess the the sort of hidden bit of the autumn statement was the real terms cut in public investment so and and i'm reading some of the reaction from different parts of the north there's real concern like local leaders say in bradford were really hoping to hear something about uh you know getting more money to prop up children's services which is massively overspent and there's this huge soaring demand for social care is it going to hold back the growth that we all think we needs to happen in the north that the public sector is seemingly going to be getting much less funds than many people think that it that it needs there's a couple of things on that and um you both probably heard me talk about this before so if you talk about sustainable inclusive healthy economic growth um we do need our nhs and our education system to be working really effectively now what's um what's quite interesting when you look at this when they've honed in on productivity in the public sector and how do we improve productivity? Now, our productivity figures in the public sector and actually in the private sector um, don't compare particularly well internationally. So that is something that we do need to hone in on so that we can start to deliver. Some of the other elements that I think, I mean, they in many ways haven't been very specific around how do we engage young people early on to make sure that they're geared up to go and get um, the jobs that we currently have in our economy. We've got a million job vacancies in the UK. Now, getting that pipeline right with with young people actually takes long-term planning and thinking through and being really clear about the skills that we need today, but more importantly, the skills we need tomorrow, and getting young people inspired and enthusiastic about that. So that's one area that I think would have been really important for us to to focus in on and and we haven't covered that in this statement uh, at all I don't believe but I'm a big believer in actually you know improving our health she says with a cold um improving our health actually often comes from to creating um economic growth improving people's lives giving people opportunity giving people choices and that's one of the elements that I think we really need to focus in on so that we're you know, supporting and enabling all of these in, uh, infrastructures, such as the key things like education, like health, like roads, like trains. Um, and I promise not to mention HS2, um, but, um, but also things like getting increased finan- uh, foreign direct investment into 
the north is going to be really critical. So there is a positive in the fact that, you know, going to a, a business expensing and extending that, I am hoping, will make a difference so that then we're growing our economy so we can invest invest more. That's going to be absolutely critical because at the moment, um, you know, actually bringing funds into the economy is, is important. And obviously they've uh, re-forecast um, where we would be in 2024. Um, I think there's a general sense across businesses that actually investing in our infrastructures are really critical. One of the things that has come out as positive um, is that if you think about the business rates for tourism and, and pubs and, and others, there is, there is a welcome on, on that. And, the, and actually, we've got um, uh, an organisation that's uh, across the north who actually does the, most of the bottling for the UK. And for them, not putting the duty up on alcohol is, that, is again, is a real positive. So we do need to break it down into um, some of that detail. But I think people were surprised in many ways that there wasn't more investment in, in the public services. Um, so thinking through that impact is going to be pretty important, I think. Henry, this is the final question. You, you alluded earlier to it being, uh, you know, something that tees up uh, next election. We don't know for sure when that's going to be, but uh, it's been speculated that with this national insurance cut taking effect uh, in January with the help of emergency legislation, that could be setting the scene for a general election sooner rather than later. And I guess there were quite a few signs, weren't there, of the Chancellor singling out uh, MPs in marginal constituencies like Keefley, uh, as he was talking about bits of funding going here, there and everywhere. And I'm just kind of interested in what, do we know any more now as a result of this about the the ground on which the next general election is going to be fought, particularly in the north of England? I, I was interested to see some um, IPPR uh, analysis, which suggests that it will be London and the South East, which gets the biggest gain from the um, national insurance uh, cuts, uh, about £100 more a year than those in the North East uh, and Yorkshire. I mean, is that a sign that the Conservatives, they're perhaps, you know, maybe they've already given up on the North of England to some extent, they're going to just try and hold on to their, their heartlands in the, in, in, in the South East? I mean, I think my my reflection would be, I mean, I think the national insurance cut is just designed to appeal to voters wherever they are, right? So, so it's it's a cynical political ploy, um, which obviously the the Times fell for, right, with their their front page saying Chancellor cuts cuts taxes, when obviously the FT went for a different a different take because people's taxes are still going up, and I think it gives them options, right, Rob? So you do this starting from January. Um, people are more likely to notice it as a cut because obviously if you do it in April, which I mean there's lots of other things happening in the tax and benefit system, doing people might not notice it as much if that makes sense. I think the the reframing I would do in terms of where this sets the election up is that in some ways uh the government have got onto ground that the opposition were already on. So Rachel Reese has been talking about growth for a number of years now since she got the job. Um, and her definition of that was based on growing the economy with some economic certainty underneath it, rather than just cutting taxes and just hoping for the best, kind of a la Quarteng and Liz Truss. So I think the challenge for the current government is that they're 
they're obviously trying to move on to territory which is naturally theirs, but which they did cede. Do you mean at least a year ago? Do you mean a year and a bit ago now? They they moved off quite considerably. So I think the, the politics of it are as as well that if there were sweeties yesterday for the north of England, um, they were definitely not as as expensive as the ones that Boris Johnson was buying us. Do you mean <laughs> the sweet shop? Do you mean yesterday's bag? I think levelling up came quite late in the speech. It was like five minutes or something. I think. I mean, it used to be like the first 10 minutes was just about Teesside. <laughs> so, so like, I mean, from when Rishi was himself Chancellor, things have moved on in terms of focus. And I think that does reflect the political reality, which is that um, this Prime Minister is not as focused on this agenda. Um, we had one big day when they trumpeted the levelling up fund and then realised that actually because they, they'd excluded so many places, that it actually wasn't a very good news story for many areas of the country. Do you mean, I think it's very hard to see that the Prime Minister's taking much personal interest in this agenda now, um, in the way that, that Boris did. So I think it's it's a different it's a different government presenting a different set of choices to the country. Um, and it's one that is trying to get onto territory that it ceded. And... I still think the election ain't going to happen whilst the government's so far behind in the polls. Do you mean? And this, if, do you mean we've had a number of resets? I'm not sure this even counts as a reset uh, because of what's happened on the migration numbers today. We seem to have got back to bad news cycles for the government almost before the last news cycle had already ended. So it's difficult to see how a government is going to go to the polls when it's so far behind. Um, and Ham could theoretically wait for something to turn up and. I suppose what they're waiting to turn up is massively better figures so they can spend more money in the budget in February. The problem is if you ask the OBR to look and there's some marginal changes, which mean that there isn't actually as much money as they thought. There's not a lot of headroom. And as the the IFS have pointed out, half the headroom is a fuel duty increase that none of us believe the government's actually ever going to put in place. So the, the sort of sort of almost 20 billion, the 19 billion that's been spent on tax cuts it's not necessarily really, really there. So I I do think that coming into an election, the government are clearly hoping they can do more, whether it be stamp duty, whether it be inheritance tax, whatever it might be. But I don't think there'll necessarily be any money in the kitty. Um, and so things could be looking more difficult, particularly as the cost of living is still going up. Do you mean people are not feeling like their real incomes are actually there, anywhere near where they were previously? And people will still feel poorer next year. And if I was in government, I'd be really worried about that because it doesn't matter what you tell people or what the front page of the Times says. If people don't feel better off, then they're probably not going to vote for you if you're making your main pitch that that's what you're offering them. That's really challenging, I think, if you're an incumbent government. A sobering thought there for Rishi Sunak to finish on. Uh, Henry Murison, thank you so much. And Claire Hayward from the NP11, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Now, one of the big levers Jeremy Hunt has to pull as he tries to grow the economy, particularly in the north of England, are so-called investment zones, where certain parts of the country get millions of pounds in government investment and tax breaks. The idea, first came about during Liz Truss's short-lived premiership, and there were due to be dozens of them around the country with red tape and taxes due to be slashed. Now, under Vishy Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, there's going to be just 12 around the country, and they will be focused on areas 
with universities in the main, and where there's already a thriving, high-skilled industry that needs a helping hand to grow and expand. The first investment zone in England was in South Yorkshire, the second announced in the Liverpool City region, and now the third is in West Yorkshire, where the Chancellor has boldly claimed that an investment zone focused on Huddersfield, Bradford and Leeds could create more than 2,500 new jobs over five years. But how will the investment zones actually work and where are these jobs coming from? We've got the ideal person to ask on the podcast in the form of Gareth Davies, Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, so a minister working in Jeremy Hunt's department. And you'd hope he'd know a bit about the area where this latest investment zone is happening as he grew up in Leeds, I gather. Gareth, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great to be with you. Yes, thank you. Yes, I, uh, I grew up in uh, Round Day in Leeds and uh, it's a pleasure to see more investment going into my home city. Excellent. You didn't go to the uh, the failing Round Day school, did you, that Liz Truss uh, was constantly criticising on her campaign trail? It's a very good school, but I, I wasn't fortunate enough to go to it. I went to Cardinal Heenan just down the road, and uh, but my, I actually grew up on an adjacent street to that school. I used to play football against the gates, which I reminded Liz uh, on countless occasions that uh, there's lots going for that school, not least the ability to kick a ball against its gates. Absolutely. Well, uh, we could reminisce about Leeds all day long, I'm sure, but uh, our listeners want to know about investment zones. There's a lot of quite technical detail, I think, that goes into an investment zone. So perhaps as a starter for our listeners, you maybe don't know so much about them. Can you just explain how an investment zone works and what is the thinking behind it? Great. So absolutely. We have uh, 12 investment zones across the United Kingdom, <clears throat> eight are in, the, uh, in England. And we've already announced the location of these. And these are in, um, you know, in locations outside of London and the Southeast. So one of the reasons for this policy is to rebalance the productivity uh, that we have in the country to spread opportunity and to increase business investment. Um, but we, it's, it's quite an interesting policy because, as you alluded to in your opening remarks, we have uh, different policy levers available um, to local authorities, working closely with local authorities based on a funding envelope from the Treasury where they can basically offer tax cuts, yes, but they can also spend uh, money on uh, various things if they so choose in order to boost an area. And so um, it's quite a, quite an unusual policy. Um, historically, we've not done many of these before. Um, one of the aspects of it is that each zone uh, is focused on a particular sector. So we have key uh, growth sectors that we've identified as having a comparative advantage. And uh, depending on the ge geography of the investment zone, they will basically pick a sector to boost and attract investment in. So, for example, today's announcement on uh, the West Yorkshire uh, investment zone, that's focused on life sciences. Uh, the one that we announced in South Yorkshire was based on advanced manufacturing with Boeing as its anchor investor. So it, it, it's quite a dynamic policy in that it depends on the specific area. But we work very closely with the combined authorities, the, the, you know, the local government representatives and leaders to determine what works best for them in their local area where we can absolutely optimize the job creation potential in uh, Leeds and, and West Yorkshire. We hope that the investment going in will create around two and a half thousand jobs over the term 
uh, of the uh, of the policy. And by the way, we, we you know we're getting a lot of interest, a lot of engagement from businesses in the policy around the country, and that's why we are expanding the policy offer from five to ten years to give businesses a bit more certainty. So it's really exciting. It's a genuine way of leveling up the country, attracting businesses into these areas. And, um, you know, we, we, we've got three uh, announced so far in terms of their invest, you know, initial investment, uh, and we'll be making further announcements in due course. Now, some listeners might be think, uh, listening to what you've just said and thinking, well, what you described there sounds a bit like a freeport, which is another quite well-known sort of government policy linked to the levelling up agenda, but they're not quite the same, are they? Can you just explain the difference between a free port and an, an investment zone? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So free ports um, are very similar, actually. The tax offer is very, very similar uh, to what we're, we're offering in investment zones. Uh, but there is a, a, a few differences. Free ports are uh, focused on ports, so they're focused on, uh, they've got a customs element uh, to it, which investment zones don't have. And as I say, with investment zones, they are s- uh, very specifically about a particular sector. Uh, so that is a that is a differentiating factor uh, where we've identified these growth uh, sector areas. Um, so they, they may be helpful to just outline what those growth sectors are. So it's green industries, digital tech, uh, life sciences, advanced manufacturing and creative industries. And these are sectors that we think we have a comparative advantage in that we can really move forward. So it's aligned very much with where we think we can grow the overall economy and where these specific areas have a strength. You know, take South Yorkshire, long history of advanced manufacturing. Boeing have come in with additional investment, set up a new uh, research facility there, creating new jobs and and furthering the advanced manufacturing centre of, of South Yorkshire. So they are very similar in terms of you know being able to offer tax incentives, um, but they are different in the approach that they're taking when it comes to the specificity of uh, the sector that they're trying to push. The, the numbers you know, being bandied around for this project sound great. 2,500 new jobs uh, in West Yorkshire over five years, promised £220 million of investment. That all sounds great, but obviously it's quite easy to promise big numbers like that. How Can you just sort of draw a line between that explains how these policies that you're announcing, how do they bring new jobs and investment? Like what, what, what will attract these jobs and investments to West Yorkshire on the basis of these policies that you've outlined? So what we're trying to do is, like I said, build from a position of strength in these areas. So an investment zone will be uh, created in an area where they have an existing strength in a, in a particular sector. Um, so in Leeds's case, you know, it's a, a great city of uh, many educational institutions, as we know. Uh, and actually has a thriving life sciences uh, sector already. And so what we've done with the investment zone is just provide that additional incentive to encourage more investment, new investment into uh, West Yorkshire, uh, which in turn will hopefully mobilise more capital because what ultimately we're trying to do is create this clustering effect. So whereby you start with an initial, what we're calling an anchor investor. So the, the initial investor um, which can be massive investment uh, or it can be you know more modest but the key thing is that it's it's just getting that investment zone going which will then result in other businesses coming in on the back of it uh, you know in some instances incentivized by the funding that we're providing from the treasury but in other aspects you know down the supply chain so other services whether it's legal profession accounting um you know whatever 
sectors that supply that industry, they will also have this clustering effect as well. Um, and then the, the other aspect that you alluded to in your opening remarks as well is around the educational institutions. And this is a really important part of, of, of the clustering effect, because when people go and study, for example, at Leeds University, you know, we want them to stay in Leeds and we want them to stay, raise a family, get a job. We want to create jobs that allow people to stay in the north of England, to stay in these areas rather than feel like they have to go somewhere else, usually London in the southeast, to go and work in their particular profession. So there's lots of different things we're trying to do with this uh, one policy, but it's the marrying up between you know government funding to start this this clustering effect and then hand it over basically to the private sector to to go from there and, and see lots of different effects from from it. And is, is the idea that it will be up to local decision makers, so say in this case Tracy Rabin, the, the Labour Mayor of West Yorkshire, to decide what uh, specific tax reliefs or where the where the, the investment goes, or has that already been decided as part of this uh, a part of the announcement today? So there is a great deal of flexibility, and we um, we you know we believe that. Uh, decisions for local areas is best taken by local representatives. So we, you know, we have a, this is why, by the way, that it's a treasury policy in partnership with uh, DLUC, so the local government department here on, on Whitehall. Um, but yes, we do, you know, provide a great deal of uh, discretion and flexibility in terms of how the money is spent, what sector as well they feel is most important for their local area. Um, obviously, because it's taxpayer money, the Treasury will always have uh, a level of oversight uh, as to the spending. And I think the British public would expect that. But we we do give a lot of dis- you know, a lot of the discretion to the local representatives because they know their area best. In the case of West Yorkshire, we've been working with uh, the mayor, but we've also been working with the, the local council as well, who actually have a, a pretty good track record of, of attracting investment uh, as it is. And so this is exactly how it should work in government different levels of government working to further the interests, further the development opportunities of local areas. And I think this is a great example of how national government and local government can work well together. Well, one of the criticisms that you sometimes hear about these types of schemes is that the economic uh, growth that it creates is displacing growth from somewhere else. So by, say, for example, in this West Yorkshire investment zone, companies will be able to get 100% 100% stamp duty relief or 100% business rates relief in some instances. Is there a, is it not a possibility that by introducing these policies in Huddersfield, Bradford and Leeds, it will just displace jobs and investment from surrounding areas, say, I don't know, Wakefield or Calderdale or areas like that. And so those areas will lose out while Bradford, Huddersfield and Leeds are gaining. And so it's really a sort of uh, a zero-sum game, I guess. Is that is that a worry for you? Yeah, I've I've heard it called jam spreading before, which is a genuine concern. I think when you have these debt very targeted incentives, and so I understand uh, the the you know the um, the pushback or the question of, about this. Um, the straight answer is that no, uh, we are very clear that this has to be net new investment. Uh, into these areas. And I think what helps with the investment zones is because they are very sector specific uh, and very geographic specific as well in terms of where you can literally offer the tax incentive. um, You know, I think we overcome a lot of the challenges that you're describing. Um, And and in some cases, it's not 
it doesn't have to be a new company coming into an investment zone. It's trying to get existing businesses to invest more to expand with additional incentives. So uh, that was certainly the case with Boeing in South Yorkshire, for example. They expanded their existing premises because they had more freedom to do so and financial incentive to do so. So it is a legitimate uh, question for sure, uh, but we've been very clear that this has to have a net positive impact and not be at the cost of a different area. We don't want to level up uh, one area by leveling down another. And so uh, that's really important because, you know, if you think about, if you step back and think about what we're trying to do here in the in the Treasury, we want every area to have opportunity. We want every area to be, uh, you know, firing all, all cylinders when it comes to contributing to overall productivity. We're not going to achieve net positive gains at the national productivity level at GDP if we aren't if we aren't having net positive contributions from different areas, so we are very alive to it, and and I think we've put in place the mechanism to ensure that we uh, we can move forward and we're not just jam spreading. My final question, uh, Gareth. Obviously, you, you know the essence of this, which you've just described, is that uh, you want it to be the case that someone who grows up and is born in Leeds doesn't feel like they need to move to. London to get a good job, which I guess you know you're a good example of. You know, you grew up in Leeds and you, you've had you had to move elsewhere to pursue your career. I mean, do you think it's realistic in you know however many years, 15, 20 years time, that people in a similar situation to yours will be able to stay in Leeds or in the surrounding area and pursue the life that they want without having to move probably to the southeast? For sure. And by the way, I did try to stay in Leeds. I actually ran for parliament uh, in 2017. <laughs> Didn't go so well. So um, uh, I, I did try to to, uh, to come back to Leeds, but, uh, uh, but I take your point. I think, you know, you are starting to see this. You're starting to see people move from uh, London and the southeast, uh, certainly to where I now represent in the Midlands. Um, you know, my brother is an example of somebody that's moved his whole family from London, very successful lawyer back to to Leeds and uh, for a better quality of life, basically, and and, uh, better accommodation, things like that. So I think you are already seeing that. But what we've got to do in in government is create the environment where more businesses feel empowered to move to areas, um, you know, and that there will be the jobs there to do the stuff they want to do. Right. So that's why, again, as part of the investment zone policy, having universities in the mix and as part of uh, a, a part of the policy design, I think that's a really important thing. So you've got to connect the workers with the investment. It's all got to work together. But in Leeds's prospect, in terms of Leeds prospect, uh, and Manchester and Birmingham and other major cities, I'm really, really excited about our prospects. You know, there's a lot of investment going into these uh, into these cities. We know that by investing in the cities, it has this uh, halo effect on the towns surrounding uh, the cities and the, the prosperity around. Uh, in the various villages and towns. And so um, I think there's never been a better time to be uh, thinking about relocating to the north. There's never been a better time to think about staying in the north. And certainly I hope to get back soon. Gareth Davies, Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, 
and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.